in verse 1, begins like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a posturd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And here's the turn, church. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in all of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And church, I would ask you to read these next verses 27 through 31 with me. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. 
All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we ask you to send your spirit to keep your promise to us that you would open our ears and eyes, illuminate our hearts to hear your word, to be changed by it. God, we submit to you now as we study it. Help the gospel to affect us, God, to move us, to change us, and help us to see Jesus as more beautiful than anything and everything. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I must admit right off the bat that this psalm is probably what I would feel comfortable saying as intimidating to preach. Uh, If you're familiar at all with the Psalter or with Psalm 22 specifically, you know why I say that. If anything, simply for its import and its historical significance, it's a very famous psalm. Outside of that alone, it's also an important piece of poetry the world over. It's used in Christian and Jewish liturgies all across the planet. And many Jewish communities have been using this psalm in their liturgies for up to a thousand years before Christ. It's my favorite psalm, if you're interested in knowing that little piece of information. It hangs on the wall in my office. And I thought I knew why it was my favorite psalm until I studied it more, and now it's even more of my favorite psalm. It's beloved by many down through history. Just an example, Martin Luther shut himself indoors for three days and three nights when he came across the psalm just to give himself to study of it with nothing to eat but bread and salt. Some ancient Hebrew traditions say that this psalm was so well known in the community that it found found its way into the lips of many famous Hebrews down through the years. It's held by one particular tradition that this psalm was spoken by none other than Queen Esther as she walked through the hall of idols on her way to see the king and as she felt the Shekinah glory of God leave her in that hall of idolatry, she quoted this psalm. You may know next to nothing about the psalm. Maybe you've never read the psalm, but if you're a believer or a Christian or even vaguely connected to Christian culture in any way, you at least know one small section of the psalm that's immediately noticeable, namely its most famous line, probably, the opening one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The famous words of the most famous man during the most famous death of all human history, the words of none other than Jesus Christ on the cross. Indeed, we will see just how important this psalm was to Jesus and the gospel story. But before we focus in on that, I want you to just take a moment to appreciate the sheer shock value of the ancient context of this psalm. I want to kind of give you a rundown of the psalm. It's a long psalm. 
So we won't have time to go into it in detail, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, although that would be extremely beneficial. But I want to give you kind of a bird's eye view of the structure of the psalm and then try and lead us to Christ quickly. So first of all, let's look at this together. Tradition holds that David wrote this psalm. And David is hailed as the writer. And this author seems to be describing, as you probably caught from the reading of it, this, this terrible scenario of perceived abandonment by God. He opens with the dramatic phrase we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he's been crying out to God, but it appears that for some reason God isn't listening isn't making it clear that he's being heard. It's also apparent that this sufferer, the writer of the psalm, still, in spite of what's going on, hopes in God. After all, he calls him what? My God. Not just God. My God. My God. He says in verse 3, yet, after complaining and saying the, the plight he's in, he says, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. You see, the sufferer may be in terrible anguish here, but he recognizes in spite of his anguish that God is still good, even in this darkness. It displays a unique faith of this writer. He then recounts to himself how, how God has helped the fathers of Israel in the past and we know the stories well recorded in Scripture. He had delivered them countless times without number at the last moment when they needed his help. But for some reason here, this author seems to see no sign of Yahweh's deliverance. You see, the poetry here is striking. And I'm, I'm assuming most of you aren't Hebrew poetry readers I don't see any yarmulkes in the crowd, so you probably don't know the tradition well, and I don't either. Uh, but just to give you a rundown of Hebrew poetry, if we were in seminary class, we could nerd out for a while here on this particular text because its structure and style is striking. You see, instead of you know, rhythms and rhymes and, and meter like we Westerners like our poetry, you know, we want everything to rhyme and flow and repeat a meter throughout the song or the poem, the ancient Hebrews didn't, didn't care for rhyme. They appreciated parallel phrases and patterns in the way they wrote their poetry. And if you start looking at the psalm, you can notice the patterns. It's beautifully written. He's moving the author further and further into detail about his despair. Those first two couplets move like this. You know, he starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then he says, yet you are holy. The next couplet is, starts off with, I'm not even a man, I'm a worm. I'm a worm, yet you took me from the womb. You see the contrast of the dramatic statements back and forth repeated. And what begins to take form here is the suffering servant is describing his plight. Something interesting begins to come out of the lines here, though, as you read through, read on into the psalm. As this servant here describes his anguish, the description here begins to go beyond normal levels of symbolism in laments 
written by David, historically. You just read it together with me. It becomes so specific, doesn't it? The sufferer is mocked, surrounded. His bones have become disjointed. He, he is thirsty to the point where his, his tongue sticks to his mouth. His hands and his feet are pierced through. He's naked. His clothes have been gambled away right in front of him. And then the climax, of course, is he's laid down in the dust of death itself. If you think about it, you might struggle to find a time in David's life where this psalm would make sense. We don't really know a record where David's hands and feet were pierced or where David was stripped naked or surrounded with no help whatsoever and not even help from God. It would be hard to find a scenario to fit that psalm. You see, the author goes on to describe his despair by this descent of evil images that are they're then reversed like they like to do in Hebrew poetry and climaxed in verse 21. This hinge verse is the best way to think about this, like a door hinge shifts from here and it pivots on that hinge. Verse 21 is the hinge. If you notice, it builds in that direction. He mentions bulls have surrounded him and imagery of a, a powerful, strong enemy was a bull. And then he mentions a lion, a ravenous lion trying to consume him. And then dogs, and dogs wasn't a positive thing like our culture thinks of dogs. Dogs were very negative in that culture because they were just roaming packs of scavengers. So if a pack of dogs was around you, it was because you were near death and they were going to eat you. That's the imagery here. And then he mentions the evildoers that seem to be with the dogs. If you move down to the middle of the psalm, that's when it reverses. He cries out to God for help again to save him from the evildoers, deliver him from the dogs. You notice he reverses the order, the lions. And then he says, randomly at the end of verse 21, that he is saved from this wild oxen that once threatened his life. And this isn't unusual in Psalms. There is usually a turning point in most Psalms, if you've read a lot of them. That is this verse, the hinge verse, this massive shift from extreme lament, extreme sorrow, to extreme praise. Most scholars believe that there was probably a pause here in the liturgy of Israel that they would have read the first half together and when they got to verse 21 they would pause so could you imagine pausing before we read that last line where it says that the Lord has saved him and then usually there was an oracle or a, a prophetic declaration from someone in the congregation in ancient Israel that would proclaim the salvation of the Lord for Israel does that make a little more sense of this dramatic shift and how beautiful this psalm would have been in corporate worship for the nation of Israel? It explains this huge change in tone. You see, the point is the Lord has delivered him. It sounded like the Lord had abandoned him, but the Lord actually has heard the sufferer's cry. 
He has delivered him from all his woes and has now ultimately delivered him from death itself. And the, the suffering servant is excited about it. He was saved. And it changes from lament to a hymn of praise. And he, he elaborates on how, how this deliverance happened and how he wants everyone to know. If you notice in verse 22 through 24, he says, I will tell of your name. He's talking to God. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted one. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has, what's that word? Heard, but has heard when he cried to him. Effectively, the sufferer is saying, Congregation, Israel, church, he has heard me. The Lord heard me. He has heard me and he has saved, saved me from death itself. The servant wants everyone to know that God has heard his desperate cry. And it is here, church, that we can't help but begin to see the inescapable reality of this particular psalm. Not only did it have meaning to David and Israel, but its fullest meaning and its deepest triumph is in the better David, the true Israel, the second Adam, the only true Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. The New Testament Writers, if you know anything about the gospel accounts, the New Testament writers, they connected this psalm so intimately with the work of Christ on the cross, with his passion and with Passion Week. All the gospel accounts quote Psalm 22. All of them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke lay out Passion Week according to Psalm 22. With Psalm 22 in mind, he quotes, Jesus himself quotes the opening line on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We notice the other trends on the cross, right? He's mocked. His clothes are gambled away. He's thirsty. He asks for something to drink. His hands and his feet have been pierced. He's naked. And then ultimately... The suffering servant, this Messiah figure, Jesus, is laid down in the dust of death itself. So what's happening here? This psalm gives us an intimate inside look into the emotions of none other than the Son of God crucified on a tree. You see how he suffers for us, church? All this anguish that's described here, why? For you? For your sin? Those three hours of darkness, as if God rolled a curtain of privacy over that hill, can you imagine 
what Jesus and the Father were experiencing in that darkness face to face? As the Father pours out his just wrath against our sin onto his Son, suspended in the air on a tree. The shredding of the triune family right there on Calvary's hill. The Son being disintegrated under the just wrath of God against our sin. But church, those aren't the only connections. Jesus didn't just quote the opening line of Psalm 22. How do those last two verses read? Verses 30 and 31, the end of 30 says, it shall, the fact that he's been delivered, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, the last phrase, that he has done it. The psalmist says that it will be proclaimed to a coming generation that God has saved this suffering servant. And do you know what the final cry of God in flesh as he hung on the tree was? It is finished. He quotes Psalm 22. As the darkness departed, Jesus didn't die in anemic, weak defeat. Jesus died in victory. His closing words, his last gasp of air, as he cries, it is finished. At that moment, the Father accepted his sacrifice for our sin. It is finished. It will be proclaimed to a coming generation that God has done it. You see, church, this psalm is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. He is the suffering servant. He's the wounded and dying one, the one encompassed by his, own, by his enemies, the one with his clothes ripped off and gambled away and stripped naked with his hands and his feet pierced through, the one laid in the dust of death itself. But guess what? This psalm is also about Jesus. But here we see that he's not only the one who was heard, and delivered and saved from death itself. He is the elder brother running to tell the news to his siblings. He has rolled out the welcome feast and brought heaven down to earth. He's brought life to the dead. His God heard his cry and vindicated him in the tomb by raising him to life anew on the third day. Jesus reigns, church. He is king. He is Lord. And all the earth shall praise him and every knee shall bow. And we're here to proclaim what we sang earlier. See the stone is rolled away. Behold the empty tomb. Hallelujah. God be praised. He's risen from the grave. It's finished, church. Can you hear those words? It is finished. God heard Jesus cry and saved him. He loves us. He loves us. You don't have to pick the daisy petal and go, he loves me today. Uh-oh, I messed up. He loves me not. Every petal is, he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. I'm doubting it. Look at the cross. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. That is the cross of Jesus. And this church is Psalm 
22. Now, we run the risk of rejoicing only in the text and its connection to Christ. And this certainly would be plenty for us to feast on this week. But we must not only hear the gospel, right? We must believe it and preach it down into our bones in a way that has direct implications on everyday life for a believer. Now let's enumerate just as we, as we close out, I want to give you a few things. Let's enumerate just a few ways that this love that we've just tried to describe in Psalm 22, how is it going to affect and hit home for us here this morning at Christ's Press? Now, this is not exhaustive. I'm sure if you reflect on this psalm and meditate on it, you'll have many more yourself. But I just want to give you a few that I see in the text and that I feel like the New Testament writers try and connect us to with this psalm. So hear this like a blessing, church. I want to give you a main thought. If you're a note taker, I'll repeat it. I want to give you a main thought and then three things after that. So here's the main thought. The passion of Christ described here in Psalm 22, it screams something. It screams something. It screams God loves sinners. God loves sinners. Jesus proved it by willingly becoming your sin and being torn from the Father and dying on the tree. He was, a, he was willingly abandoned so that his siblings would never have to be. He was raised to life to show the world that God hates sin, but God loves his son and his children more. And nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's the main thought. I'll repeat it again quickly. The passion of Christ in Psalm 22, it screams God loves sinners. Jesus proved it by willingly becoming your sin and being torn from the Father and dying on the tree. He was abandoned so his siblings would never have to be. He was raised to life to show the world that God hates sin, but he loves his son and his children more. And nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Three things. How, how does this love of Christ laid out in Psalm 22? What are some, I want to give you three things, that I, uh, three ways I think this love changes us. Three ways I'm hoping it works its way down into your bones. Number one, this love frees us from fear of ultimate abandonment. Did you get that? This love frees us, the love in the gospel, the love of the sacrifice of Christ on the tree, the love displayed here graphically in Psalm 22, this love frees us from fear of ultimate abandonment. You see, church, this psalm, praise God, ultimately is not about you or me. We didn't have to go to the tree. You see that? We didn't have to be ultimately abandoned. Jesus was. Jesus experienced abandonment from the Father so that you would never have to. 
And that, that, the power of that frees you from the fear of ever living a second on this earth abandoned by your father. Not a second in this life. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Because of Jesus forsaking, we are not forsaken. So number one, this love frees us from the fear of ultimate abandonment. Number two, this love, this gospel love, the love of Christ, the love of God dying on a tree, this love converts our suffering from meaningless to meaningful. Think about that. It converts your suffering from meaningless to meaningful. You see, Jesus' suffering here, church, it meant something. It, it wasn't meaningless. It might have even felt that way at the time. I know our suffering feels meaningless sometimes. But it meant something, church. It had a purpose. It meant the salvation of humanity itself. And church, when we suffer, we identify more and more with Christ and he more and more with us. Church, your suffering, no matter what it might be, I don't have no clue what you're going through. I know, I know some idea because I'm also a human being, I, but I have no clue what burden you've been asked to bear. But I can tell you this, it's not pointless. If you're a believer, it's not meaningless. It's not useless. It doesn't mean nothing. It means something. Your suffering may be the very cocoon from which your greatest joys and eternal weights of glory spring in the next life. You have no idea what God is doing in you through your suffering. If you, through your suffering, can catch the slightest hint of what Jesus suffered for you out of love for you, then it is a grace in your life to identify more and more with the suffering servant, Jesus the Christ. So this love converts our suffering from meaningless to meaningful. And number three and lastly, and we're going to wrap up. This love transforms our hearts from the inside out, okay? So it's not a love that approaches us and demands a way that we access the love, a list or a rule or a law, and then it begins to change us as we more and more obey it and, and try and live according to this standard. No, this is a love that changes human beings from the inside out, not the outside in. You see, the suffering servant's deliverance here, Jesus' deliverance, what, is it, what, what did we just read at the end of the psalm? It, it meant the conversion of the nations themselves to God. Christ's work shows us the love of God on display in cataclysmic imagery. No better way. If you doubt the love of God, if you want to see it illustrated, it has been illustrated for you. It is God dying on a tree. Look to the cross every time you need a living, breathing illustration of God's love for you. See, this love changes us from the inside out. And, and get this, church. I hope you get this phrase. Just think, if, if you are loved this deeply... If you're loved this deeply by God, if I'm this safe, then I'm free. 
I'm free to live in unspeakable peace and to love with unbounded joy. It frees us, church. If I'm this love, you see the faith that Jesus had in the Father, even through the suffering, he calls him my God, my God. See, Jesus did what we couldn't do. Jesus is the second Adam. See, our father bought the lie, right? Our father, Adam, and our mother, Eve, they were told, you know what? <clears throat> Has God said? You know what he was saying in effect? You know, actually, God does not have your best interest in mind. God doesn't love you. God lied to you. And the first Adam bought it. The first Eve bought it. But you know what the second Adam didn't do? He knew. He had faith ultimately in God. Jesus, the true son of God, knew that even in death itself, the love that his father had for him was stronger than the power of death. And that was the faith, the beauty, the power, the strength that broke the actual chains of death itself and the grave. You see, this reality, knowing that you're that loved, that you're that safe in spite of your circumstances, gives you the power that Paul discovered later on. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be abased. I can abound. I can be poor. I can be rich. I can be betrayed. I can be loved. I've got it all because God enthroned in the cosmos has come in flesh to die for me and that love transforms you from the inside out it's not a way that you can earn his love he just pronounces and shows you on a tree how much he did love you and that just changes us if you're this loved if you're this safe then then we are free to live in unspeakable peace and to love with unbounding joy. We can love others freely because if they leave us, if they hurt us, if they abandon us, it's okay because we are loved beyond any human love. Sir Isaac Watts, the uh, great hymn writer and, and pastor describing this love in the often skipped over verses of three and four of his famous hymn that you might know, Alas, and did my Savior bleed we don't always sing verses 3 and 4, but I found them so striking. I feel like Isaac Watts got it. It says, Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when God, the mighty maker, died for his own creature's sin? Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. I hope that this has affected you to the core, like Mr. Watts. Church, it's my prayer that we will continue by the power of the Spirit to work these truths down into the very tissue of our lives. That's the love that I hope is washing over us. This morning, I hope in some way maybe you've glimpsed barely the, the, the white, hot, fiery love of God Almighty for sinners. It, it only takes one or two glimpses and you're going to be hooked the rest of your life. And I pray that someone here this morning has seen that fire 
at a distance like a mighty fire over a hill and it maybe just felt a flicker or two of the warmth of what it is for Jesus to die on a tree to save his people. Let's pray together. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all your promises, all the whispers throughout the Old Testament of the suffering servant, the coming one, the true king, the better Adam, the high priest, the mediator, the deliverer, the mighty warrior God, we thank you for Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God slain for us on a cross. God, it's our prayer now that the Spirit of God would help us to just barely digest the beauty, the power, the depth, the height of the love of God for us. God, we can't house this. We can't contain this, but we pray that you you broaden our horizons, Lord. Let us, let us house just a little more. Let us consume just a little more of the truth of the gospel. We trust you, Lord, to keep us, to deliver us, and to save us. We thank you above all things and above all else for Jesus Christ the righteous. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.